Welcome back to Dear Baseball Gods. Today's episode is titled Places I Slept, and we're going to talk about all the different host families, hotels, and different living situations that I encountered over my seven years in pro baseball. So with all this travel that we have as a, as a professional athlete, it's often a question I'm asked, you know, hey, like, where did you sleep? Like, what did you do? Like, how do you, how do you survive when you're on the road? You know, how does all that work? And it's, it's foreign to all of us until we just kind of get there and pretty much just dive in. And so my first season when I played for the normal corn belters, which is the town in which I now live, I was fortunate to have been matched up with really one of the, the best situations that I, I could have, could have found. So in that season, my big goal, obviously, you know, I had just, uh, completed Tommy John surgery and I was trying to get established in pro baseball. So the number one thing that I needed was pretty much just stability. So I was matched with a host family named Dennis and Dory Crawford. And Denny and Dory were this sweet old couple, and they've since moved to South Carolina. And they opened up their, it's not exactly a townhouse, because out here in the Midwest, usually what they call them out here are zero lot lines. So they lived in this house that was conjoined with another and so, again, like not really like a townhouse, but just didn't have a, uh, you know, a backyard or a side yard on one side of the house. So it was just too too connected, but really nice, brand new place. And uh, they just moved in, I guess, uh, I think a couple of years ago. But they were the, the foundation that I just absolutely needed that first season. So with Denny and Dory, they, you know, I was like their, their kind of cherished guest and they stocked their fridge and just made sure I was as comfortable as I needed to be and um you know just just took care of me like a member of their family which was which was awesome which is you know really what you hope for when you get a host family as a player and obviously like with collegiate summer ball with all these different sports you know host families are are an integral part because either in college you know you don't get a wage or in you know minor league sports the wages are very low so trying to keep some of your income in your pocket is important and usually part of the deal with the host families that they will provide food, you know, basically just quote unquote room and board. And they're not asked to provide all your meals, but they're just provide asked to, you know, kind of have a fridge with some food in it for you if you need it. And, you know, encourage you to be part of the family. So with all that, you know, you hear different stories. So I had an awesome experience with, with Denny and Dory. You know, they, they became close friends and they drove down to my games on the road sometimes. And, you know, they... uh they struck a really good balance of being my friend and, and providing for me, but also I think leaving me alone just enough. So I've heard other guys who've been with a, you know, a full functioning family, you know, husband, wife, and two kids. And it's, it becomes a little much sometimes when they're asked to be the big brother or whatever. And they're not specifically asked to be that, but there's just a lot going on. And with the ups and downs of, of a baseball season with, you know, you're living out your dream and maybe doing well and maybe not doing so well and just trying to decompress and relax after, you know, a long road trip or just a, a typical long day at the ballpark. It can be tough when you're coming home to a, to a family that wants to sit down and have dinner with you and, you know, talk about your day and then go play catch with uh, little Johnny in the backyard and, and do all this stuff. So I didn't have that. And obviously I, I like kids a lot because, you know, I own a baseball academy, but I never had that experience. Um, Denny and Dory were actually my o- my only host family. I figured that this was the first of many, but that year in normal proved to be really my last host family. So that foundation was crucial in it, and it gave me the springboard to, to continue on with, with baseball and have a good first season and get established and get some good numbers on paper, and, you know, the, the numbers follow you for the rest of your career. So you know, I just can't thank them enough. And they, uh, they were awesome just being friends to me, you know, more than anything else, friends and supporters. So my next year I got traded away to a a new team called the Lake County Fielders. And this is going to be a topic of a completely different podcast because the story is just so huge and multifaceted, but Lake County was fronted by, uh, Kevin Costner. So he wasn't really, as far as we could tell later on, like an active partner, or he might not have had any even money in the endeavor at all. We're not really sure, but his name was sort of attached to it because the team had this sort of field of dreams 
appearance and the logo. So it was like this uh, old timey guy, like this baseball player, and he had you know some like corn in the background, and it was just supposed to be this kind of like nostalgic, uh, this nostalgic club that we're playing for. So with the Lake County Fielders, they were they were a new team in this new kind of conglomerate league called the North American League, which was cobbled together from the Frontier League. A couple teams were supposed to be leaving. The uh, Northern League, which was an, a pretty well-established, long-standing league in the uh, northern part of uh, America, like the North Mid- northern Midwest, so the Minnesota kind of area, and like the 10 hours surrounding it. And then a couple teams in the Golden League, which was a, a California-based league that was kind of struggling to, uh, to hold on. So the goal was that there were kind of like three different conferences. Oh, and also the... Uh, some of the teams from the United League, which was based around Texas. So basically a couple teams from each of those leagues were going to come together, form different conferences. So you wouldn't necessarily be flying to Texas every week, but you might go down for like a, a week or two road trip down to Texas and play teams from that that division, you know, and then ditto for California and, and uh, the Chicagoland teams and all that. So I got signed onto there. I got traded away, and I was happy to to be traded away. I was very aware of my rapid aging. Um, even like tomorrow, yesterday, I went to the barber and got another haircut, in which I looked down and see tons and tons of gray hair. But uh, it's, it's obviously a joke that I was rapidly aging at that time. I was only twenty five that winter of two thousand eleven, or the winter of two thousand ten. I turned twenty five, and obviously, I was, you know. 25 for the whole next year or so but anyway the uh that pace that I was at being in the frontier league which is a rookie level league like I need to get out and get higher up quicker because you need to kind of play in an age appropriate league just like if you're in the the affiliated minor leagues and you're 30 year old 30 years old you don't want to be in single a ball like you a you really wouldn't be because they would get rid of you but you need to be in really more like triple a so it's it's always you kind of have to stay with your pack like stay with your herd of guys your age and where they're supposed to be because obviously in the major leagues um they they want their best prospects in the big leagues between 25 and 27 if they can get them up there so with all that i was happy to be traded away and this was like a higher league it was you know a conglomeration of a bunch of different um older leagues than the frontier league the frontier league is a great league it's a rookie level league there's a lot of young players who didn't get a chance or who were bounced out of the affiliated minor leagues in a year or two. So it's just an inexperienced league. There's a lot of 22 to 25-year-olds in there. All the other leagues, there's a lot much larger mix of 23 to 27-year-olds. And then the Atlantic League, where I played my last two, my last three seasons, is an average age of like 29 probably. So it's it's a lot of 27 to, you know, 30 and I had some 40 year old teammates in that league you know really established players who'd been the big leagues and been around a long time so I got traded to Lake County and it was exciting I was like oh man we're gonna play in Yuma we're gonna play in Hawaii there was a team there we're gonna play in Texas and like one of the things I loved about playing all these years was the travel and just the excitement of new ballparks which was something I I always appreciate and you know it's it's interesting it's something that I had this conversation recently in independent baseball, which if you don't know what independent baseball is, independent baseball is the track that runs parallel to, to Major League Baseball. They're minor leagues, but independent of it. So the normal corn belters, all these teams that I'm talking about are independent because I never made into the affiliated uh, minor leagues. And so they, don't, they just have individual ownership and they have their own leagues that are separate from the minors. So if you play well, these minor league teams scout them heavily. And they'll sign the best players out, and they'll put them on their own track to hopefully make it to the major leagues, and some of them do. So with all that, there's a lot of players who go to big schools, you know, like USC, Florida, Georgia, Florida State, Louisiana State, Texas, whatever. All these bigger schools, I I rarely saw representatives from schools like that, you know, a big-name school in independent ball so when we get these new guys you know there's guys released on the regular and a new player comes in to to replace him and you're like oh hey man where are you from where'd you play college ball like all that stuff they never spit out those big name schools and you think man like that's where the better players are why are why are these guys not coming out here and it seems like when you go to a bigger school like that 
you get this kind of big league experience in college. You know, you play in front of 5,000 fans often, depending on, you know, where you go. And the facilities are better than most minor league facilities at almost any level. And you have this just incredible pampering at that level. Not that it's easy to play there because it's not, and not that it's easy to stay there and get playing time because it's not, but the uniforms, the gear, the, the facilities, the ballpark, the fans, all those things are at a very high level there. I mean, so when you get signed into pro baseball, suddenly you take a massive step, a massive step back. You're playing in this little bumble town and 800 fans show up and the ballpark's creaking and the the locker room is hot and muggy and your uniform doesn't fit you well. You get you barely get fed after the game. It's basically just a step back in all the amenities. I mean, often a couple steps back. So I feel like a lot of these players who were overlooked at bigger schools, and this is just a theory, after having that incredible experience, if they don't get drafted, they're like, well, if I was good enough, I would have got drafted. I didn't get drafted. Eight of my teammates did. So I'm just going to hang it up, start the real world. Whereas guys like me and most of the other players that I played with who didn't get drafted, they all seem to come from smaller schools where they didn't get that experience and they were hungry for more. So when I played at the University of Maryland, Baltimore County, you know, it was Division One baseball and we played some good teams and our field was decent and our facilities were decent. But on any given game day, there were 100 people in attendance and half of them were our family, you know, our, our parents and friends and girlfriends or whatever. And, you know, it was just a lower stakes kind of game. And I always craved playing in front of a big crowd and playing in one of those amazing ballparks and all those places you see photos of. And you're like, wow, I want, I want to be a part of that. So I feel like for that reason, guys like myself and all these other players from smaller schools, you know, division twos and NAIAs and, like an occasional division three and all these schools that are more no name, they produce these guys who are good players who maybe didn't get their chance and, or maybe got hurt like I was. And when they're done, they're like, no, I want that. I still want those, those big lights. I still want my name on that big scoreboard. I still want to play on that gorgeous, you know, grass field. That's, I want that. I'm going to go find it. And so I feel like a lot of my teammates came from the, that same kind of background and you just never really saw those those big name schools tried in independent ball. So I don't know if it's like a, a complacency thing or or what. But I read this book recently called The Talent Code, and in that book they talk about these hotbeds of talent and how many of the world's best athletes, especially from you know other countries, come from these tiny little hole in the wall. I know Anna Kornikova is one of the one of the uh, examples they mentioned that. Anna Kornikova came from this, like, tiny, crappy, concrete, just like, and, and I don't have a picture of it, but this just little junky tennis gym somewhere. I, I think she's Russian, but I, I don't quote me on it. And you think, how would this amazing player come out of this dingy, horrible little, like, dungeon of a, of a tennis club? And it's because they wanted more, and that she wanted to get out of there. And when you have the air conditioning and the expensive turf and the world-class equipment you just get a little bit complacent and you just don't push as hard because you already have it you're already kind of at the top whereas people from these third world countries or just these little hole-in-the-wall training facilities I mean think about the Dominican Republic so many incredible major league players come out of there and they don't have anything compared to what these American kids have growing up and so it produces this hunger I want to get out of here I want, I want better. I want better for myself and for my family, for all this stuff. I like, I want the world-class training facility and I want to play in front of the fans, but I don't get it now and I want it. And, and that fuels their training and they make more use out of crappier equipment than, you know, these silver spoon athletes do with world-class equipment. You know, it always comes back to, to the person, not, not the equipment. I remember when, when I started Warbird Academy in 2010, we had almost no equipment because I had no money and we had just very, very little stuff. We had a little space and it was like a postage stamp, basically my first gym and had a couple barbells and that was about it. And then we just, we just worked though. We just worked. And as I got more clients and then they paid me for training, I saved that money and I bought more equipment. 
and it spiraled and it spiraled and it spiraled to where we have a, a nice facility today. But even now, after reading that book, I'm less motivated to continue to upgrade our facility because I don't want our athletes to be too comfortable. You know, I don't want I don't want spiders running around. I don't want cobwebs and, and dust and, and grossness. So we take pride in our facility and it's and it's nice, but at the same time, there's something to be said for striving for more, for striving to even though Warbird Academy is great, for striving to to be in one of these cathedral weight rooms like that you'd see at a, a big division one school or you know, a, a pro clubhouse, something like that. So I got traded away to Lake County and there I was in Chicago. I guess it was Kenosha. So it was a little bit North of Chicago, closer to Milwaukee. And I show up to my host family and it's in this really like rich suburb area. And this area of, of, of North Chicago was just nice in general. It was a lot of big homes. There was a lot of like beautiful kind of like protected wetlands. And I pull up to my host family house and it's just just like huge mansion. It's probably a million dollar house. And I I walk in and I greet the woman and her, her little son. He was like five, I think like, no, probably like six or seven years old. And I later learned that he was like a gifted child and, and super smart and, um, you know, on track to be like a, you know, a, a physicist at age, 13 or something but I walk into this big house and there's trash everywhere and this was this was 2011 and there were a lot of shows on TV about hoarders which you like watch these shows just like on A&E or History Channel or wherever whatever they were playing on and you're like how do people live in squalor like this how do people just have trash all over their house and just old stuff that they don't need and just junk everywhere and it like piles up and like fills these houses and these are obviously extreme cases that they had on tv but as i walked through this house for the first time i'm just looking around and it was like one of these hoarder houses in like phase one that in five years when i'd come back you'd be waiting i'd be like waiting up to my chest through trash and this woman was was really nice and she told me all about her, her gifted son. She, I mean, she just loved him to death and just, just bragged about his accomplishments and all this stuff. And I was thinking this whole time, like, and this is the environment that he's growing up in. So it was just her and him. Father was never in the picture. Um, and then I just, I slept on a mattress in one of the vacant upstairs bedrooms that night. They had like six or seven bedrooms in this house. And there was just a mattress on the floor. And I think I had a sheet thrown on top of it. And just like everything about this situation was backward and I couldn't feel comfortable there. I stayed for about five or six days because our spring training, we had like one or two workouts in Chicago. And then we were flying to Arizona to have spring training down there because our ballpark wasn't built yet. And it was also like freezing cold. So we, we departed about five days later, but in that five days, that five days in that house, I decided that there was absolutely no way I could function there for the rest of the summer because we were planning on being on the road for about seven weeks while they completed our ballpark. Again, this is a huge, long, like crazy story that I'll tell in another episode, but I, I was just trying to figure out how I could get out of that situation when I got back in seven weeks because the kitchen counter had a, a foot layer of trash, old boxes, old, the dirty dishwater was just like filled up to the sink. There was a mop and bucket, just dirty water sitting on the floor. I mean, you'd have to kick trash out of your way. You'd have to clear space with your hands to make a sandwich on the table. It was just a really unfortunate situation. And I was just kind of stunned that that I was thrown into. And I felt really disappointed for this, this little guy who was living in all that. And that was what he had, he knew. So I departed for Lake County and we spent seven weeks on the road as advertised. We did our first, I think, 14 days in, in Yuma, Arizona. And after that, we departed from Maui. And then we were in Canada. We were in just all over. And, and with that league, what happened was everything was kind of in place for the Texas uh, West Coast, Chicagoland, and, and that big league to kind of come together into all these different divisions. But it didn't work as teams, I guess, got cold feet on the travel and all this other stuff because air travel is extremely expensive. And 
what happened was that we were the only team in the Chicago land. A couple other teams kind of reneged on their deal and went back to their old leagues. And so it was Lake County in, you know, northwest Chicago suburb. Then there was Calgary and Edmonton. And then there was Chico, California, Maui, uh, Hawaii, obviously, and Yuma, Arizona. And I think that's it. So it was us, all those teams, and we had to fly to every single one of them. So we'd fly one place. We'd be there for a week to obviously cut down on travel costs. Like We weren't doing three-game three game series because flying every third day would be crazy. And there we were. So we had these huge time zone swings going from Chicago to Maui, and we'd lose five hours. Then they put us on a red-eye red eye overnight flight, so we'd be traveling for 24 hours straight, get right off the bus and play a game, just exhausted. And then it became this just kind of vicious cycle of pounding coffee and energy drinks to stay awake during games. And then the, with the time zone swings so regular, and then with all the caffeine just kind of continuously in everyone's blood, guys weren't sleeping. I averaged four hours of sleep for that whole that whole summer. And I just was like a walking zombie for, for much of it. But, you know, the whole the idea of like, where did I sleep that summer? Well, I didn't sleep much, and I typically slept from, like, 3 a.m. to 7 a.m., and then I would be up. And it was this it was this interesting kind of lesson in your body's ability to adapt because I'm a guy who still needs a solid eight hours, and I try to get it every night if I can because my brain just works better. And if I get six hours, I feel it significantly if I'm trying to write or if I'm trying to, you know, create some some content for podcast or or an article or whatever i just there's more typos it's just slower going my sentences sound stupid i I just i can i can tell that my brain doesn't work as well when i fall below really below like seven hours so seven to eight and a half is, is kind of my butter zone but for that summer i mean i went almost two days without sleeping once and pitched um i routinely went a whole whole nights without sleeping and then played a game just because we would travel overnight usually. And then obviously with all the caffeine and trying to, to be ready for games and the weird time zones, it just, I, I, I averaged four hours of sleep for the summer. So to think that I could, at the end of it, be okay and my body could function on that, like I actually did. And at the end of the summer, I came home to Baltimore and I, I spent a couple of days sleeping on my, my friend's couch in Baltimore. And I just remarked to him that I was like, getting used to sleeping only for four hours a night or so four or five and that I get up and I felt okay and I was like just stunned that I felt okay doing that when in, in previous you know my entire life up to that date in not even seven hours was, was kind of okay you know if I fell below that I was was a little bit stupid so it was just interesting just just seeing how your body will adapt to things and Obviously, you hear stories of of military men and like Navy SEALs how they're so sleep sleep deprived and going on these missions. You're like, man, how do they do that? But I guess their bodies adapt. Obviously, it takes some time, and it took me at least a at least a month to get used to it. But it uh it it did happen. So after that year with Lake County, well, after that half year, I should say, the team collapsed financially, and I was on my own, and we were all kind of scrambling to find a new place to play. And hoping that the ownership didn't try to hold us in Lake County after our manager quit and all that stuff. So I found myself in early July with a team that had sunk. You know, our, our ship was sinking. We were all rowing away. And I was looking for a new place to play. And I, you know, called the people that I knew. And I uh, I found out that the Fargo Moorhead Redhawks were down to just four starters. They had been going through a four-man rotation for about a week or two. And they desperately needed a new starter. So a couple calls were made, and just within a, about a day, I had instructions to drive through the night and meet the team in Sioux Falls, South Dakota. So I did, but there was a, a wrinkle in the story, which was that I had been sort of seeing a girl from afar, and she had planned a trip to come and meet me back in Chicago when the Lake County Fielders returned from their arduous long road trip so she had a plane ticket already made out and the team hadn't officially really collapsed until we got back home so she flies in I finally fly back in we're both in Chicago and then the whole team just 
implodes on itself. And so she's there with me. We can't get her back home. I mean, her plane ticket was, I don't know, I guess, I guess it was probably open-ended at that point. But basically what happened was she was just coming with me. So we get in the car. We're driving up to Sioux Falls together, and we stay uh, up there. As they had, I think, two games left against the, the Sioux Falls Pheasants. They're now the Sioux Falls Canaries. But So we stay there, and then from this point it got weird because I was moving back up to Fargo after that. And I was following the team bus in my car, and they set up a host family for me. And it was actually the same host family that my friend John Duffy, who was one of my uh, uh, collegiate summer coaches, he had played for Fargo for a couple of different seasons, and he'd stayed with his family. And it just happened to work out that I was going to get to stay with them. That the player, one of the players they had had, was getting released, and they had a vacancy, and they'd done, you know, they'd hosted players for like 15 years big Red Hawks fans and, and really nice people. But they had a house rule, which was no girls could stay overnight unless it was your wife. And this was not my wife. And it was a, a different situation. Um, and we just had nowhere else to go. And I wasn't really actually aware that we were going to go in that host family until, I don't know, a little while later because I thought the team kind of understood what the situation. I thought I explained it, but I probably didn't. So we stayed like a night in the hotel in in Fargo and then we got instructions to head over to the host family and, and meet them and we showed up and they're like oh she's here and it was just this awkward thing from the get-go and she spent uh, another three nights I think there and then we flew her back home out of Minneapolis but it was uh I just felt I just felt extremely awkward upon meeting them violating one of their long-standing rules of their house and you know, it was in a, a different situation, obviously, and we couldn't do anything about it. And I explained it to them as best I could. And, you know, they were super great people. And we uh, we got along well for the next next six weeks that I was there. But at the same time, I pitched horrible. It's by far the worst year of my, of my career. And, you know, with all that, was it, it kind of doubles back to what I talked about earlier, which is that when you're staying in someone else's home and you're living out your dream and you're failing at it, it's... It's not easy to be a a typical like upbeat member of that family. So I uh, I, I kind of kept to myself a lot. You know, I play a little poker with uh, with the man of the house, and it was just kind of fleeting interactions, just because I just didn't have a lot to say, and I was stressed, and I figured I was going to be out the door just as quick as I had came. You know, based on my ERA, which was double digits for at least a couple couple weeks in that uh, six weeks that I was there. So. It was a tough time, and it was, you know, I, I was I was still privileged to be in. Again, they had an awesome, an awesome place, and they took great care of me, and they fed me, and it was another very, uh, though short-lived, good foundation for me to try to get back on my feet as a as a Red Hawk. So after that season, I got released. Um, they didn't keep me, obviously, for reasonable uh, understanding, but. I uh, I tried to bounce back after that. So the next year, I called on with Evansville. And when I went to Evansville, this is where my host family's uh, completely ended. So Evansville put me up in a studio apartment with another guy. And so I was basically living in a hotel for the whole summer. And I think I paid like 300 bucks a month or something like that. It was, you know, garnished off my $1,000 a month salary. And, and, and me and this guy, we just had our beds like 10 feet apart our little like kind of like prison cots in this uh in this studio and a lot of teams do that where they have agreement with local apartment complexes and where I guess they get some of their vacant rooms at a, at a discount or whatever maybe they trade um advertising at the ballpark and they just have an agreement where they can you know hopefully move players in and out because obviously the biggest thing about finding your own place is being in a lease so you don't want to have a long-term lease because you could be hopefully signed out or traded or released at pretty much any time and you don't have any control over that so signing a lease is really not an option so most of these teams that are smart about the way they conduct their business will try to barter something out or just come to an agreement with a local apartment complex and put guys up there so that was what we did and I lived there the whole summer until I blew up my elbow and and headed back home of course that was August so most of the season I did stay in that little apartment and it was fine obviously there's not a lot of privacy and 
there was no really we could really go to to get away from each other but uh, my roommate Tyree he went out and just did his thing a bunch and we just go to Starbucks and just kind of hang out and we didn't uh we didn't get in each other's hair too much but we had a couple other guys stay with us at different times because we had a couch and even though space was pretty limited we had a, a guy sleeping on our couch for a while and this is just one of the other little just things that happens throughout independent ball careers that this guy was with us in spring training, made the team, and then, you know, just didn't play well after that. And about three weeks in the season, maybe a little longer than that, I'm not sure, found himself released. So this guy was from California, really nice, genuine guy, not the brightest, and wasn't good with his own money. And he found himself released without enough money to get home, basically. And I don't know what the situation back home was, but on their end, his parents said, hey, we don't have the money to fly you back either. So we had this kid on our couch for, I felt like the better part of two or three weeks, sleeping on our couch with just like no direction and no vehicle. And we'd go to the ballpark and He'd stay on our couch, and we weren't really sure what he did. I remember one day he uh, he said he walked to the ballpark, which was like a solid five or six miles, and in the Indiana heat, it was just like oppressive, incredible humidity and like upper 90s, I think, when he when he walked up there. And like I said, that might be an exaggeration because it was probably only June at this point, June or early July. and But a really hot, humid day, and he walks, and then he stops at this – pub right by the ballpark and he's like yeah you know I, I just I walked I'm like really you're crazy like it's super hot you walked that far and he's like yeah and then I just stopped and I, I mean I was so thirsty I had like five or six beers and we're like man like I don't feel like you have the money to stop and have five or six beers I feel like you should have drank out of a pond or something I don't, I don't know but he uh it, it was clearly an issue that he wasn't setting himself up in any situation where he could get home any better you know whatever money he had he's kind of pissing away and so finally we were like look this needs to end we got to get him home so we kind of took a book as a we took a collection up as a team to get him a greyhound bus ticket home and we did that so i think we cobbled together like i don't know 150 bucks maybe amongst all the guys maybe not that much but got him a got him a bus ticket and said our goodbyes and he uh departed for for california made it home so it was probably like a 30 hour bus ride or something but got to do what you got to do so that was kind of our one of our interesting guests um at that little studio apartment and you know like our athletic trainer was in the same complex and some of the interns were in the same complex there was a lot of us and some of us would hang out afterwards and it was in general just like a, a decent time I guess being around uh some of the other players and front office people but overall that was kind of a typical situation where you're in an undersized overcrowded place when you're not with a host family so after Evansville I had a year off because I blew up my elbow so I lived like a normal person for a little while but then after that I I signed on with Camden in the Atlantic League and if you don't know about Camden Camden is right across the Delaware River from Philadelphia so if you're getting chased by masked gunmen in Camden in Camden you could if you ran far enough you could dive into the Delaware and swim and then over being in Philadelphia. Uh, that's probably happened before because Camden is like one of the most dangerous places in the world. And I think for a while, it's not anymore. It was like the most murders per capita, maybe in the whole United States, where basically to sum it up, the the ballpark that I played in, Campbell's Field, which was named after Campbell's Soup Company, which is right down the street in New Jersey, the... Uh, the the Ben Franklin Bridge, this big beautiful blue bridge, is one of my uh, my favorite landmarks. Um, the Ben Franklin Bridge runs right behind our ballpark, so Campbell's Field is one of the most beautiful places to play. I mean, this this hawking bridge is in the outfield, where if you hit it about seven hundred fifty feet, you could hit the bridge. Um, so like I could hit it because I have that much power, but you know no one else could. But anyway, if you were coming down to to the game on the I guess it would be the south side of the bridge I mean that's where the ballpark was we were on the south side of it the south side of the bridge was the safe side so Rutgers Camden the the college campus was on that side and they'd invested a lot of money in like um, private security 
So if you walked anywhere downtown Camden, like on the ballpark side, on the south side, I guess, there were security officers every couple every couple uh, blocks, and you know it was actually kind of beautiful. It was right by the water, and it was brick brick paved, and um, I mean, really not a bad place. But this, people were so fearful to come down to Camden. You know, if I meet a girl somewhere, I'd be like, "Yeah, come to the game." She's like, "In Camden?" She's like, "No." I'm like, "But you'll be in a ballpark with three thousand other people." No. I'm like, but there's police. No, I'm like, it's a public event. No, like people just would not come to Camden. It had that bad of a reputation. And I remember one of our teammates' wives was coming down to visit from out of town, and as she got close to the ballpark, she turned the wrong way and went under the bridge onto that side, which that's like the ghetto side, and very dangerous. And a cop pulls her over a little bit later because she kind of gets lost back there, and the cop said, "Hey." do you know I pulled you over? She's like, no. He's like, well, it's because you're being followed and I'm going to escort you out of this area and don't come back here. She's like, yeah, I didn't mean to be up here. She's like, I I think I took the wrong turn. I'm trying to go to the ballpark. She's like, yeah. So there was a car following you and a lot of times they'll do that and they'll try to box you in and then steal your car or mug you or both or all of it, you know, probably all of it, right? They're probably just going to take everything they can get. So it was a scary situation. I mean, that happened. And God, if that was my wife, uh, I'd be terrified, you know, we'd buy, go buy her a tank or something. But I mean, it was, we were all pretty well aware that Camden was not a place to be messed with. Um, we knew a guy who would, he told us that he would buy his drugs there. Unfortunately, this is one of our teammates. And uh, it was a rough area, a lot of murders, and just, it was a, a very bad spot to be. So I made a point to never go on that side of the bridge when I could. And, but anyway, so that was Camden, and with the River Sharks, that was the team, the Camden River Sharks, they were once a prominent team with once, I mean, they had, I think at one point in their in their history fielded a lineup with eight out of the nine players were former big leaguers. So they used to have a, a, a winning tradition. They no longer had that when I was there, and it was really, it came from the top up, and you could see it, I mean... The front office just didn't know how to run a ballpark. They didn't know how to run a team. They didn't know how to take care of players. And at that level, in the Atlantic League, when it's it's all 28s and older, these guys have families, they have wives, they have kids, they have mortgages and bills to pay. So you have to pay them more. And you also have to give them stability. So if a kid, a guy has his wife and his daughter maybe traveling with him, he can't stay in some like slummy, crappy place. They have to do a good job. And so the other teams in the league would do a good job of like like I said before kind of networking with apartment complexes and finding good like clean places for guys and their and their families to stay and they couldn't always do it for free but they'd at least have an established place so when I was in spring training with Somerset they had an agreement with the Sonesta Suites where if they got a new player there was always a a suite at the Sonesta which is like an extended stay you know like a residential hotel pretty much and it was like five fifty a month, which isn't that cheap. But at the same time, you could live there comfortably the whole season. You know, have a little kitchen, a bedroom, you know, shower, washer, dryer, all that stuff, and be taken care of. And when you left, you left. And when you came in, it would be ready for you. So it uh, other teams did that so that they could attract players and give them the stability that you need to live and go about your, your personal life. So they didn't do that at Camden. And... You know, I think for me it was fine because, again, I kind of liked adventure and, and all that was good. But basically what I was told when I got there, I met the team on the road again in Southern Maryland. And they said, all right, well, when you get home, you'll have three nights paid for in the hotel, which is a nice, nice hotel in Cherry Hill, New Jersey. And they said, after that, it's up to you. And, uh, you know, find a place to live, I said. And they said, well, and, and if you can't, you know, the hotel, we have a team rate of 65 bucks a night, which... 65 bucks a night times if you stay there 15 nights a year because you were on the road on average half of each month you know that's quick math about a thousand bucks a month so most of my paycheck I think I was making 1500 at the time so it just was like okay great so I'm in a sort of untenable situation financially and I gotta find a place to live so it just so happened that a, a former teammate of mine from Evansville a guy named Wynn Pelzer who was a high draft pick out of the University of South Carolina and overall good dude. He uh, 
he texted me. He's like, hey, I saw you got signed by Camden. And if you look on the transactions, you'll see my name as well. So Wynn was coming in about a couple days later after I got there, and we were going to be teammates again. So I said, all right, well, you know, here's the living situation and blah, 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 blah. And so we bunked together, and we split hotel rooms for a while. And I think for the first two or three weeks, that's what we did. And even then, 32, 32 bucks a night per person, it's not cheap, adds up, whatever. Plus, it's in a hotel, so you have to eat all your meals out, which is, you know, just adds it to the expense. So after a couple of weeks of that, Wynn grows a little bit weary of it, and they kind of told us that, hey, you know, the Rutgers Camden dorm is going to open up for guys where you can live in the dorms uh, for like 450 a month. And, you know, it's it's obviously not ideal. It's a dorm, but you'll have, you know, your own closed-door room. You'll have a common area and, like, a little fridge and a shower. So it's like, you know, it's a reasonable place to live. We said, all right. So our goal was to make it to... It was the middle of June, and I think it was late May at the time. All right, let's just try to piece it together until we can move into the dorms. So after a couple weeks of living in the hotel and packing all of our stuff and then going on the road and then coming back and unpacking the hotel, we were in the clubhouse, and a, a lot of the Latin players would sleep there. So we get there, they'd be there all night, and we'd leave for the, after the game, and they'd just be hanging out and chilling and um, just to save money because a lot of them had, you know, wives and families back in the Dominican or if they'd moved to America or whatever, um, just trying to save money. And that's where they slept every night in the clubhouse. So I think it was about like eight or nine guys were sleeping in our clubhouse just because the team couldn't provide for very well for them. So they were doing that. And after a little while, it was like, hey, man, like I'm just going to – like I, I don't want to do it to you, but I think I'm just going to get an air mattress and maybe spend a week or two in the clubhouse and – save some cash. So I was like, well, I guess that means I'm doing the same. So we went to Walmart and got a pair of uh, full-size or queen-size air mattresses and a little foam topper. And uh, we both kind of hunkered down in the clubhouse for a couple weeks. And the the tough thing about it was that I didn't uh, – I'm a light sleeper in general, and a lot of guys are on this, like, 3 a.m. sleep schedule, which I'm not into. So I was trying to go to bed, like, 1.00 you know, 12 o'clock or one, because our games usually finish like 1130 or I'm sorry, like we're usually out of there like 1030 or 11. So a couple hours to like decompress or do whatever. And then I'm ready for bed, but I'm not trying to stay up till two or three or four. So the clubhouse lights don't go off completely. They're like emergency lights and they just always stayed on. So it was never dark. So the only place you could go for darkness were one of the coaches offices, which they left open because they knew the deal. The guys were staying there. So a couple guys would go in there, close the door, have have darkness and like a room to themselves. But, you know, those guys laid claims to all those spots early, so that wasn't an option either. I bought a sleep mask, which those are uncomfortable. It's not into that. And then the training room was the other place that was sort of untapped, and it was a closed-door training room. But the floor was like wet most of the time. It was dirty most of the time. There was an ice machine in there, and... It was, in general, just not a place you really want to sleep. But I slept there. So I each night I'd drag my mattress in there right, right by the uh, the ice machine. And usually I'd remember to turn the ice machine off, but sometimes I wouldn't. And then 90 minutes into my, my slumber, I'd be awakened with, like, a big crash of a whole rack of ice falling into the big, you know, basin below. And I'd curse myself and get up and turn the ice machine off and then try to remember to turn the ice machine back on when I woke up so then the trainer wouldn't, you know, cuss me out about not having enough ice for the game that day. And, uh, yeah, and that, that dance went on for about two weeks. And, of course, we went on the road, too, so it wasn't like I slept there for two whole weeks. I probably slept there for five or seven nights, something like that. But that was not ideal, but it's just one of those things you kind of do. And looking back on it, it's, you know, I guess one of those stories, A, I'm telling to you now, but B, that I'm sure I'll tell my, my kids as a crotchety old man when – you know, I'm trying to let them know how pampered they are. But anyway, so the Rutgers dorms finally opened up, moved in there, and that was fine. Did that for the most of the rest of the year. They closed back up to us in, in August when kids came back to school. So the month ago, after I was, like, really settled in and, like, comfortable, uh, I got kicked out again. And then I had to move in with guys that had found an apartment. 
So I became, I think, the fifth guy in a one-bedroom apartment, a two-bedroom apartment. And I insisted on having a room and paying a little bit more. And by insisted, I just, I mean, they gave me the option. I said, hey, if you want, you can. Other guys don't care. They'll sleep in the in the big room with everyone else in the living room. But I preferred to have a, a closed door so I could get some darkness and go to bed earlier. So I did that, and that was fine. And, just a, and everyone just had blow-up mattresses on the floor. Same thing, which if you've never done it, a blow-up mattress with a foam topper is actually pretty comfortable and you actually almost can't tell it it's a it's an air mattress so highly recommend if you're slumming it but so we did that for the rest of that year and you know I was the fifth guy in that two bedroom and and it was okay it wasn't a big deal but we didn't have any real furniture one guy had it was just all mattresses in that in the house and um well not the house the apartment but um and then one guy had a blow-up chair (laughs) so that was about it so most mornings I just got up and I, I left and I go to Starbucks and I catch up on some work and, and just do whatever. But, um, but yeah, that was the living situation there. And so then the next year I, I, I wanted to come back to Camden and I did, I got signed to go back there and I, uh, I didn't want to do that again. I knew the deal. I knew they weren't going to help me. I knew that I was going to change. And so I just tried to make my own destiny and I scoured Airbnb and Craigslist and I finally found a place on Airbnb uh, where there was a room for rent in a Philly neighborhood called Fishtown. And it was this girl named Lindsay. Hello, Lindsay, if you're listening. Uh, and Lindsay was a former lacrosse player at Temple, extremely cool, and had another room for rent and in her little three-bedroom townhouse in Fishtown and with her and her dog, Fred. And uh, so I moved in there, and I remember the first night I moved to Fishtown. Fishtown is a really old neighborhood in Philly, and obviously Philadelphia is one of the earliest uh, cities and the, the roads on my street were, you could, if you weren't paying close attention, you would hit your rear view mirrors on another car that was parked. So you could only fit two cars in this little street. And so it was one row of parallel parking all the way down in front of our house. And then the other side, like you had to concentrate on not hitting the curb or the cars. It was so narrow. I, I never encountered a, a road that narrow before. So I remember getting up there. I got up there like 1 a.m. the first night to move in. I don't remember why I chose to move in at 1 a.m., but it was a mistake because everyone was like a weeknight, and everyone had uh, already parked for the night. So I literally could not find a parking spot anywhere. And I just ended up parking on the curb behind another car where that did that, so I figured it was okay. But I like just couldn't parallel park well enough to find to get a spot because I hadn't done it in so long. And parallel parking is not the hardest thing, but when you haven't done it in a couple years, you can't do it to the level of you know, living in a tightly packed city like that. It's where everyone is like six inches on each bumper and you need some skill to get in there. So I quickly learned and adapted and became pretty good at parallel parking within a couple of weeks. But that first night I was like, well, what do you do when you can't park your car? Do I just go drive this in the river right now? Like, I don't even know. Like, what do you do? But, um, I did get a couple of tickets parking on that concrete a couple of days later, which is perfect. But, um, that was a good situation. So Lindsay was cool and I got to do my thing and I, uh, walked around Philly in the morning and I would sit in a coffee shop and get some work done and do some writing and, you know, find a lunch spot and come back home, grab a quick shower or whatever, grab my stuff and drive across the Ben Franklin bridge, which I loved and, uh, pay the $5 toll, which was the big downside, but whatever. And it's part of the cost of living. And, um, I got to live in Philadelphia for that, for that whole summer, which I, which I really liked. So, you know, I, me not living in a city here, I'm really more of a city person. So my goal was just try to get as much out of that experience as I could. And, and, uh, I was, I was pretty excited that I got to live in, you know, live in a big city for a little while and get a feel for the, the Philadelphia beat, I guess. So I did that for that whole season. That was by far my favorite living situation year, just cause I had freedom to, to explore the new city that I was in. Most of the time in a minor league city, you're just in a little dingy, crappy place where a little in the middle of nowhere town and not much to do and no real places to go and definitely not walkable. So having a walkable city for a summer was was pretty awesome. And then after that, I, I moved on from Camden after that year. That was the best, one of the best two seasons of my career where I made an all-star team and I kind of had my choices of, I felt I had my choices of places to play after that. Because it was, it was a free agent contract year to year with the Atlantic League. So after that season, I moved on. I kind of brokered my own deal to go play for the Long Island Ducks, which were really one of the best franchises in, in all of minor league baseball, really. 
went there, uh, had some shoulder issues, pitched through them like I always had, you know, willingly and made no excuses, but didn't pitch well and uh, got released in June. And, and, and that whole time I was living with my girlfriend. So I met a girl in Long Island that previous summer when I was playing for Camden. We uh, kind of just couldn't get away from each other and we tried to make it work and did a long distance thing over that whole off season and then decided that I would try to go to Long Island and we'd try to make it work there. And, you know, I think we did our, the best we could, but only, you know, living with someone else. And that was the first time I was not single in pro baseball. So it was just a different experience and I had stability and it was a, a comfortable place and it was, and it was good. It just was different. And I, it's hard to put my finger on what it was, but it was just different. So that was short lived. So there's honestly not a whole lot to report, but just a little garden level apartment and came home to her each night and went back to the ballpark each day. And, uh, and that was that. But, you know, like I said, about six weeks in, I was, I was released and, and that was it. So, you know, over the years it was, it was a fun ride. And I think the living situation and just the uncertainty was one of the things I cherished most. Obviously I didn't cherish sleeping in the clubhouse, but with all these things, just those are the memories that you make. And I, uh, I loved playing new ballparks and seeing new cities and trying to explore them and get a feel for them and, and do all that. But so as I look back on it, you know, the, the places I slept were, you know, a microcosm of the whole experience where it was just part of the travel and, and the adventure of it and, and, and being a ball player and, and living that life. So, you know, spending 70, 70 days a year in hotels in addition to, to living in a new city pretty much full time for that summer, you know, it's just, it's one of the things that I enjoyed. So hope you enjoyed this episode and we will see you uh, next week on Dear Baseball Gods.